Welcome to Kyperian Commentary. I'm your host, Yuri Brito. This is episode 92. Have we lost our minds in this great country that I have learned to call home for over three decades now? Now, for many of us who have made our journey here to the United States for whatever reason, for a better quality education, for a better future, for better life and opportunity, this question is actually becoming more and more complicated as the years go by. On the one hand, we have what I perceived a fairly established and rooted populace. At least that's how I used to think about it. Now, I understand that not everyone knew the philosophy of history and not everyone would read classic works like Hobbes or, or Nietzsche. But there was a general sense, at least when I came to this country, in which Americans who were somewhat enamored by the presidency of John Kennedy and Ronald Reagan shared a lot of common assumptions about that, liberty, education, abortion, taxes, and on and on. We are in an age where, uh, to use the language of a sociologist, Charles Taylor, our social imaginary has been slowly but surely altered by the voices of the left. They're monstrous voices, morally, economically, politically, and so the question we begin to ask in our stage is, what does the Christian tradition, what light does it offer on our present chaos as we all appear to be lost at sea as willing captives of this titanic serpentine figure? And so on this episode, it's been long and weighty. I am very delighted to have with us Dr. Glenn Sunshine to Kyperian uh, to elaborate on some of these themes and to converse with me about where do we go from here? Dr. Sunshine is an award-winning author who has published prolifically, but in our day, he seems to be just um, Mr. Common Sense. The book that he has written is entitled Slaying Leviathan, Limited Government and Resistance in the Christian Tradition. Uh, Dr. Glenn Sunshine, lovely to meet you, my brother. Thanks for having me on. A delight to have you, and I've been wanting to have this conversation for quite some time in these few minutes we have at our disposal. And perhaps the best way to summarize my opening exhortation is to ask you a question that you yourself posed at the beginning of your book. What went wrong? Yeah, um, what went wrong in a lot of ways is, well, it's, it's a very, very long story, but uh, from the church's perspective, we've forgotten our history. Uh, we have forgotten to study our own political theology, and we have forgotten to apply Jesus's words about government. Okay, that's a, that's, a, that's a wonderful synopsis. And I want to begin by just giving uh, our listeners here a, a little flavor for how the church has thought through these issues regarding uh, limited government. We have, from the beginning, this glorious principle of the book of Acts chapter 5, which the early church stated very explicitly that we ought to obey God rather than men. Now, obviously, I understand that these issues from an ethical standpoint sometimes are not as clear as we like them to be. They're complicated issues at time with all sorts of complexities. How did, and you observe some of this in your book, how did the early church, our forefathers in the faith, the post-resurrection church, how did they issue, how did, how did they work through these issues of submission to authority figures? Since we know quite well from the pages of history that the first few centuries of history, we as a church live in a, a kind of exilic state under the Roman Empire. How did we sort of navigate this uh, unique complexity? Well, we have to begin, I, I would begin two different places. First of all, 
looking at Jesus's words, I think it's really important that we pay really close attention to what he's saying. Uh, when he's asked if it's legitimate to pay, pay taxes to Caesar, um, now this was intended to be a trap for him, but he articulated a principle that I think we, we regularly ignore. Give to Caesar what's Caesar's and give to God what's God's. What that means is that there are some things that Caesar legitimately has authority over, but not everything. And what is Caesar's is determined not by Caesar, but it's determined by God. So the questions that we need to be asking regularly are, does this belong to Caesar? Is this something that God has properly placed in Caesar's hands? Now, this is a principle that the early church is going to be following. And this brings us to a second point. The most fundamental confession of the Christian faith is Jesus is the Lord. And that was an inescapably political statement in Rome, because in Rome, the de facto creed was Caesar is Lord. Caesar is the one who's in charge of everything in this world. And the Christians had to answer, well, no, he isn't. And that's what got them in trouble. You know, a lot of the persecution of Christians really came about because they refused to indulge in an act of religion, burning incense to a statue of the emperor as a way of showing their loyalty to him. They were happy to say, yeah, we'll obey you in the areas that are legitimately your authority, but when you overstep them, no, we aren't going to obey. And that was considered treasonous, and that's really why they were persecuted so violently, sporadically, not consistently, but you know, on and off through the first three centuries of their existence. Now, the other thing here is that something that's regularly ignored is that the church actually made an argument for religious liberty. Um, and the, this comes up in several different forms, but the mature form of it articulated by Lactantius in his Divine Institutes was, God is not pleased by worship that is compelled. Therefore, we have to have religious liberty. We cannot compel worship in any way, shape, or form, because otherwise it won't be pleasing to God anyway. And this was their argument for why the Roman Empire ought to tolerate Christians, but also it was a much broader argument applying to religious liberty across the board. Okay, so there's a, um, a highly developed argument in, in the book of Acts as how Christians dealt with these things. And, and sometimes the, the assumptions, and you, you read this from... Uh, people like in the Sojourner magazine and things like that, the assumption is that Christians very willingly gave their liberties for the powers that be as a way of pursuing self-preservation. But there are, as, as you know quite well, various examples in which the, the early church fought back against the principalities and powers of the day. The principles that you're, you're elaborating here, uh, can the Christian, and this is the, the, the kind of confidence that I want my, not just my parishioners, but those who listen to Kyperion to have, can the, Christians, can the Christian be firmly rooted in the scriptures and develop from the scriptures, the totality of the scriptures, an argument for, for limited government? Or is this a, a question that we uh, can only ask at certain stages of history? So for example, when you read things like uh, in the Old Testament, uh, when, you, when you see the, um, the pursuit of kingship, the pursuit of a leader, of a king, the people of God tend to be very, um, very capable of making decisions regarding government itself. Where do we find bad decisions? 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Especially in, in the wilderness wanderings there. And of course, in when we live, when we look at the through, through the Pentateuch, for example, we see very explicitly that God, Yahweh, was our king. And that sort of divine revelation God provides. But then we get to 1 Samuel and you have the elaboration, or at least the unfolding and development of, of human kingly figures. Is the argument for the Christians something that he can only grasp from random Old Test, uh, New Testament passages, or can he begin to develop a a full theory of government and, and limitations of that government from the early pages of scriptures in setting that trajectory for the Christian church? Oh, uh, we have to remember that all scripture is inspired by God, and that was spoken originally with reference to the Old Testament. So it's important for us to pay attention to the Old Testament. I built my argument in the book primarily with reference to the New Testament, but it turns out that many of the limits of government, and for that matter, many of Piper's spheres are anchored in the book of Genesis. Uh, Genesis 1 and 2 really lay the foundation for human rights. They lay the foundation for uh, limits on government, and they lay the foundation for the idea of autonomous spheres that Piper would, uh, would develop. Um, but even if you just simply go to the words of Jesus, when he says, give to Caesar what's Caesar's and give to God what's God's, that is a statement of limited government. Caesar only has a certain degree of authority. He can't overstep it. So you can see this throughout scripture if you really pay attention. And this is what political theology over the centuries, actually over the millennia now, uh, was really intended to, to tease out what are the implications of all these various scriptural texts for our understanding of government and its uh, proper role in society. Okay, very good. One, one follow-up here uh, before we delve into it, just a couple of historical elements here of the book. Um, the, the prime, the magnum opus of political discourse, at least within the Christian church today, is Romans 13. Christians have essentially avoided that text for a very, very long time, and suddenly it has become the, the, the John 3.16 of political discourse. And you look at Romans uh, chapter 13, the reading of it uh, indicates very clearly a boundary markers around the role of the civil authority. One of the arguments that I'd like to see you just interact with a bit, Dr. Sunshine, is the argument from some that there is this unrestricted submission that the Christian ought to give to the government. And I, I actually heard this from someone that I was not expecting to hear from a, a relatively sort of fundamentalist uh, theologian recently by the name of Todd Friel, I think, where he essentially elaborated on the fact that if the government says it, we should do it. And he used as his sort of proof text, Romans chapter 13. How does a Christian sort of interact with that uh, fundamental uh, political description of the limitations and the authority of the government, local government, civil government as well? Well, first of all, we're going to acts. We have to obey God rather than man. Okay. okay. So at the very least, we have to say that when the government mandates something that scripture forbids or forbids something that scripture mandates, we have to disobey at that point. There, there really can be no question on that. The question, if you hold that position, the question becomes where you exactly draw those boundary lines. When the government says you can't meet for church on Sunday because of a COVID restriction, what do we do then? God tells us where to assemble together. 
is this something that we have to ignore? Well, we have to we have to disobey one or the other. You know, so there there are a number of questions of that sort that come up. Now you can come up with pragmatic compromises on that particular issue, and you know, I don't really want to pursue that one too far. But it seems to me that there's a lot more at stake than just things that God explicitly commands. There are, uh, well, for example, in Romans, it tells us that government is established to reward the good and punish the wicked. What happens when government rewards the wicked and punishes the good? Are we still obliged to obey? What happens when the government tramples on rights that are given to us directly by God and that are pre-political? Um, these are things that we can find. This is why Genesis 1 and 2 is so important. We can actually trace a number of critical elements of human rights, locks, life, liberty, and property, for example. All of them can be found in Genesis 1 and 2. What happens when the government oversteps its bounds in that area? Are we obliged to obey a government that has itself moved outside the boundaries that God has established it in the law? The, these are things people tend to either ignore or oversimplify when you get to the Romans 13 argument, we just simply have to obey the powers that be unless they're telling us to violate God's law. Well, what are we talking about when we're dealing with God's law? It's much bigger than the explicit commands. Right, that, that's excellent. That's a, that's a good summary there. So uh, delving just a little bit into a topic that I, I love very much. Uh, part of my, some of my master's thesis work was um, Abraham Kuyper with uh, Dr. John Frame at RTS. And one of the issues that came up quite a bit in some of our conversations is the, the who, who, who protects whom? In other words, what, what sphere, if we're looking at the sphere of, of the church, state, and, and family, has, the, let's just say the church and the family, have we allowed too much room for the government, which has a legitimate function, but have we allowed too much room for the, the civil authority to enter into our lives and dictate ideas in areas they're, they're ill-equipped to opine? So the, the general premise here is that the government has the answer to all things, but where have we, if you could give me maybe a couple of historical examples, where has the church and maybe the biological family has, where have they succumbed in areas where they later learn to regret? Yeah, well, I would say just starting with the current situation, families have subcontracted out their responsibilities to other institutions. Um, parents are principally supposed to be responsible for raising their children, and yet we find them sending them off to daycare, sending them off to school and all that so that they're spending more time with strangers or asleep than they are with their parents. Uh, we've subcontracted out the spiritual formation of our children to youth pastors, you know, rather than taking responsibility there. These are major failures in, in family. Yeah. And I would also note that at that point, the church is taking on responsibilities that aren't primarily its role either. Um, you know, the church needs to support families in their spiritual formation of the children. The church shouldn't be replacing families for this. But when you look through history, you see many examples over and over where people have have um, surrendered rights or surrendered um, responsibilities to the government. And in every single case where that happens, 
it's produced really, really bad results. I mean, you know, we can look at any totalitarian state and what are they saying? Well, we are going to take care of your children. You know, we are going to raise them. We're going to, you know, we'll provide them with their education. We'll provide them with their jobs and all that. You just need to stay out of our way. And the results of that have always been disastrous. You know, we've seen this not just in totalitarian states, but in a variety of other contexts. We can look at, um, you know, we, we could even look, for example, at medieval monasteries, many of which took children, the parents would basically give their kids to the monastery. And these kids were then raised in the monastery away from contact with the family away from the outside world. Um, and frequently were stuck there whether they wanted to be there or not. You know, there are all kinds of, of situations where people have abdicated the responsibilities that God has given them. And you know, they thought in, in every case, they thought they were doing something good. They thought they were doing the right thing. But in every case, it ends up on the whole, not necessarily for every individual, but on the whole, it ends up being a very, very bad deal. Yeah, I appreciate your um, uh, equal opportunity offender uh, approach to the subject here, because would you, would you argue in line of what you're saying, uh, Glenn, that institutions like spheres like the church and the family have willingly swallowed government intervention because they have initially failed to do what they were called to do. In other words, as the church and family, and I think you mentioned this, as the church and family begin to enter into areas where they don't belong, that does is it creates this kind of lacuna and vacuum where the government can easily come in and the church and family will say, oh, please um, eat our food as well. Is that kind of a, does that premise sort of follow? Yeah, and, and it, it's bigger than that. Um, economic, this is something I didn't get into in the book, I don't think. Economic and political systems tend to par parallel each other because they're both based on assumptions about proper relationships between people. Thus, free markets go well with representative democracy. They're both based on the ability to make choices, to make decisions about where your best interest lies. I get to pick my job. I get to pick where I spend my money. I get to pick who represents me. You know, I vote to keep a store in business by buying their goods, and I buy what a politician is selling when I vote for them in office. These go together. In socialist systems, the natural form of government is technocracy, that you get experts who run everything. And our country has been increasingly moving toward technocracy in all kinds of areas. We tend to rely on specialists and experts to do everything for us. I don't even change my own oil in my cars. Um, but that means we send our kids to the youth group to get them saved, to get them trained up in the faith and all of that sort of thing, because the youth pastor is the expert. You know, rather than doing personal evangelism, the goal is to bring people to church so that the guy in the pulpit can seal the deal. Rather than witnessing, giving witness to what we ourselves know and have experienced. We want the professional to do it. Same thing happens with our education. We want the people who have the degree, the credentials to teach our kids. We want the, the CDC and all of the others to the experts out there to dictate to us what we need to do in our personal lives for our health. 
we need the experts to well fill in the blank. It, it, it goes every direction. This is really a move. It, it parallels the move toward the left that we that you started with with the introduction here uh, toward a sort of socialistic mindset because socialism and technocracy go together. That's excellent. It, it uh, rhymes a bit with some of the the reading I've been doing in Chesterton in terms of his concerns for localist tendencies. And there was an article in the New Yorker, I think, just recently that sort of elaborated on why local, uh, let's say, local markets, buying local markets is um, is an abuse of sort of a white privilege kind of approach. And there is this sense in which when Christians, as they should, when they are receiving their wisdom from local authority figures, which I think is the, the way I think the Bible describes it, that in itself sends a message to those in higher positions of authority or of expertise that they're no longer needed. And I think that's the direction we need to go. The, the more local we are, the more concerned we are, the more we seek our, our, our priests and our pastors, the more we seek uh, those who, who love us and know our well and have our well-being in mind, um, I think the more capable we'll become of making wise decisions without depending on them. Because as you mentioned, as you've written so um, so eloquently, I think the, the government is looking just for one opportunity to enter into our lives and to assume details of our lives that they don't need to be involved in. And they don't have our best interests in mind. They are completely unaware. They are uh, uninterested in our well-being. And so that's a, a very interesting point. I have a, a question about an area that I spent a lot of time focusing on in the so my doctoral work on the Reformation, and I spent a lot of time focusing Calvin's Geneva. You you brought this up in your chapter on the Reformation, Protestant Reformation. You provide some really helpful distinctions uh, between the the Calvinistic and the Lutheran and Anabaptist views of authority, and you discuss within that section, Glenn, a little bit about the the concept of the two kingdom theology, or you know the general two kingdom doctrine. I want, if, if you don't mind, as we kind of come to a close of our discussion, can you elaborate a little bit on how the doctrine of two kingdom was fleshed out among the reformers, and where do you see the abuse of that doctrine played out in the evangelical ethos today that is giving so much room for leftist ideology to penetrate? Yeah, two kingdoms theology originates with Luther. And in Luther, what Luther said is that God has, he, he's arguing against the Catholic Church and Catholic right. Church encroachment into politics. He says that, that God has two kingdoms in this world, the left-hand kingdom and the right-hand kingdom, he called them. The left-hand kingdom is civil government. The right-hand kingdom is the church. Each of them have rights. Each of them have their responsibilities. Each of them have duties. And each of them performs their own function. The one thing that neither of them can do is bind consciences. You know, your conscience, you, you are answerable to God and to God alone for, for your conscience, okay? But other than that, each of them had their particular areas of, of, of expertise. Now, when you go to Calvin's Geneva, you find an interesting situation there. It's often described as a theocracy, but that is a complete misunderstanding of the system. I agree. What, what, what Calvin said is that the church and state each have legitimate responsibilities and they should not interfere with each other However, there are certain areas of mutual interest between the two of them. And in those areas, the church and the state need to cooperate. 
So the two big ones are social welfare, where you have the deacons at, at running what was known as the General Hospital, which was a comprehensive social welfare institution in Geneva. And you also have the consistory, which was responsible for social discipline in the sense of um, helping people raise the standard of public morality in Geneva. Okay. And for that, you have the pastors, but you also have lay elders, all of whom are drawn from councils in the government. So it's actually a combined church-state institution um, that is responsible for policing uh, morality within the community. So you see this, the cooperation where there's an overlap in the interest, but otherwise they're not to interfere with each other. You know, the, the pastors could advise the state about ecclesiastical matters, maybe some foreign policy things that involved religion, but they didn't have authority there. They could give, they could give the, their counsel, but it's up to the state to make those decisions. So you've got, a, you've got a distinction with a degree of overlap. Now, where two kingdoms goes wrong in its modern incarnations is, well, it, it almost literally turns into a heresy. The word heresy comes from the Greek verb hiring, which means to choose. And the idea is you choose one idea and you run with it so far it distorts everything else. It's sort of like grabbing a, a thread on a sweater and pulling it, the whole sweater twists up. What happens with, with a lot of modern two kingdom exponents is they say that the church and state are hermetically sealed units and they can't interact with each other. The church deals with church stuff, the state deals with everything else. And when you do that, you ignore the fact that Jesus is Lord of all of it. And that therefore, the church as the instrument through which God extends his kingdom into the world has to interact with the state and you know, be involved in, in uh, civil affairs, at least in an advisory capacity, at least speaking out, because to fail to do that is to fail to recognize the kingdom and Jesus's authority and the role of the church in that context. Yeah, well, it, it it appears that the, the this concept of the spiritualization of the church has plays a big role in that dimension too. If, if the church only has a spiritual function, one that only enhances the the piety and the devotional life of the Christian, then word and sacrament is is all you need. My argument, uh, Glenn, has always been, at least from, from a Kuyperian perspective, is that um, word and sacra word and sacrament are preparatory means. For the Christian's role in society. Christian hears, the Christian eats and drinks. Well, the Christian goes out from that environment, and then he hears and eats and drinks. In other words, he applies these things. And then there's this sort of concern, and I think the concern derives from uh, various movements within evangelicalism, like uh, the concerns of the moral majority, for example, where Christians were using the pulpit for political speeches. Would you, would you agree that's in some ways sort of a, a, an abusive way of dealing with this conversation? Yeah, I think I think you've got a really, uh, you're, you're dead on in what your analysis here. I think that that's exactly right. Um, the politicization of evangelicalism is what's creating the backlash toward this extreme version of two kingdom theology. But going from one extreme to another isn't necessarily the right way to do it. The right way is to come up with a proper balance between 
our between the role of the church and the role of the state, rather than having the church pull completely out of it or have the church become completely political. There's a way that this needs to be done or that, that it can be done and historically has been done where the church continues to stay involved, that it continues to equip people to live and function in the world, especially as citizens in a republic, uh, that it teaches them how to think about issues from a biblical perspective. All of these things are roles that the church needs to be performing and should be performing. That's excellent. I was uh, tweeting yesterday just briefly about the the sort of the, the prophetic dimension of some of our you know heroes of the faith in some some ways in the last uh, 50, 60 years. And I think to myself that everything that R.J. Rush Dooney and Van Til and Francis Schaeffer were warning about in those days that have come to pass in a titanic and massive wave. And I'm grateful for their witness and I'm grateful for your witness in our day, Glenn, uh, Dr. Glenn Sunshine, who has been a wonderful voice in this day of political confusion and who has provided a great manual for Christians to think accurately about society and the role of the church and politics. Slaying Leviathan. Dr. Glenn Sunshine, thank you for joining us at Kyperion. Thank you again for having me.